1: Here's part two of our lovely chat with Mossin Saidi. If you haven't heard part one with many funny things, including our chat with Mossin, but also many other uh, lovely emails and voice notes, head back to the feed, go and listen to part one. Now then, here's part two. Alok Menon talks about this a lot, who's been on this podcast, about there can be an image of Islam as being homophobic, Mm -hmm. but actually a lot of, or all of that is actually colonial stuff that was put in.
2: Because I'm not a historian, I try not to go too far into the kind of, you know, where does it come from? Who's responsible for it? What does that mean for what it looks like today? Oh, thank um, God, because I'll be way out my depth. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Also probably bored to But I recognise things as they stand, which is that there are, just like in pockets of society in pockets of the muslim community there is homophobia but i think that the problem is that we exist in a world where nuance is missing so uh, i think that muslims are vilified and i do think it's easy to equate faith with certain prejudice and mm-hmm. the situation is just in my experience is way more complex than that a lot of the people reaching out to me are heterosexual muslims who are reaching out to say that they loves the book and that they really support what I'm saying.
1: Well, because you've sort of become a figurehead for a few things as a result of the book. And one of them was, was, is that, you know, you were the first person from your school to go to Oxford. And a a lot of people have got in touch with you saying that's really resonated with them.
2: Yeah. And that's why I said earlier that the book, that's why we changed the subtitle because for me, it's not just about sexuality and faith. It is a book about class and race and just identity in Britain. Um, I should say that the fact that I am the first person from my school to go to Oxford is not something that fills me with pride. It, it's something that probably once did, and now, as I reflect upon it as an adult and I look at our society, it's shameful. Like, why mm. is it that you get 100 people from one school in one year who go to Oxford and Cambridge, and then from my school in the 20 years in, after which it was formed, there was not one person? Um, mm. So the, the, fa- the fact that I'm the first is something that we should all be ashamed of. And it speaks to a much bigger issue when it comes to opportunities, particularly in Britain. You know, I think we we often, we think about America uh, as this really capitalistic society. And we, and we look at America and we say, well, at least we're not like that. At least we have more balance. Uh, we're not as aggressively capitalistic as America. But actually, what is more capitalistic than paying for your children to go to the front of every line by giving them a private education and america doesn't have private schools the way we do they don't have a a kind of a hierarchical education system the way that we do Mm. so for me class is this thing that i just feel is ignored or it's just definitely not It's definitely not addressed in the way that it should be, particularly in Britain. And I don't think that you can treat it in isolation either. I think that too often we're having conversations about race without thinking about class. Frankly, I don't think that you can do that, particularly in Britain. Um, Mm. When you look at the statistics of young people in prisons, over 50% or approximately 50% of all of the children in prison in this country are black or brown or, or ethnic minorities. So, yeah, for me, class is missing
1: because your parents really wanted you to go to Oxford, right? They said, like, you can go, you're not leaving London yeah, yeah, for university unless it's to Oxford, yeah. which I just think is hysterical. And so you go to Oxford and it's, your parents are really proud and they're telling everybody about it and you're feeling like you're doing the right thing and, you know, that's all great. But through that process of being at Oxford, you, of course, as a person, are changing, you know, and... Yeah then that thing comes where they sort of are kind of saying to you well you're getting a bit big for your boots type thing and there was this moment in the book which I I loved where there was that fraudulent thing yeah. at the post office and you were trying to help your dad but actually he was kind of acting like you've been condescending to him and it was yeah. sort of it was like this meeting of all these things you're talking about about class and expectation and generational kind of yeah. banging in the all together. Do you
2: know I if you don't mind my saying, I'm really touched that you picked up on that. Because you know, you, you talk I talk about the book quite a lot and often you're talking about the same issues. But to have somebody pick up on that particular experience, and I'll tell you what it is now, but it really it's it's quite moving because there was so much in that tiny sentence. And basically what happened was my dad was wrongfully arrested um He used to run a post office and there was fraud going on and um, they thought that it was him. There was a dawn raid on our house. I had to go back from university and I got home and he was still at the police station. And then a few hours later, he comes home and I said to him, like, you know, tell me everything. So he's explaining that he was interviewed and they asked him whether he wanted a lawyer. And he said, no, I don't need a lawyer. I've not done anything wrong. And I just I was so frustrated because I was like, Dad, like you Why did you, how could you have answered their questions without a lawyer present? And his response was to say, don't speak to me like that. Just because you went to Oxford, just because you go to Oxford does not make you better than me, is essentially what he said. And you're right. It was, that was a really difficult experience. And there was so much complication, so many layers of complexity in it.
1: Mm. And he was saying that, you know, this happening, us being accused of being fraudulent, just confirms what people think of Pakistani people. And we can't let that happen. And, and, and almost for him to not choose to take the lawyer was to prove that he was so innocent, right?
2: Yeah, and, absolutely. And, mm. and the thing is that that mentality of having to do everything that he can to demonstrate his integrity was built on 20 years of racism in this country right? Like it was built on having come to this country, being force fed this hatred about who he is, and about what he and his skin colour stand for. And then being involved in a situation where in his mind, all of those people are standing at the sidelines saying, well, see, told you so, look at him.
1: Mm. And that in turn is driving a wedge between him and his son.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's it's interesting, actually, because I remember growing up, my dad used to say, you'll never be one of them. You'll never be white. And he said it specifically to me because he used to think that I was, I was, <laughs> how to put it? He used to say that um, I was trying to be white because right. I was interested in culture and I was sometimes questioning of faith and my interests weren't the same as some of his and so, yeah, and all of that, all of, all of that, his seeing his son turn into this man that he didn't want his son to be, and particularly the queer bit, actually, um, all of that was based on this experience of being told by the British establishment or the British, by British society that you are not one of us. And then seeing a son raised to become one of them. And it's interesting because I said to him, like, you know, we had a conversation about this and I was like, well, what did you expect to happen? You sent me to a British university. You sent me to like one of the best British universities. Did you not think I would, like, what did you want for me to get from that experience? And he said, I wanted you to take as much as you could, but I didn't want you to give anything. And what you did was you gave everything. and, you, and in, Of yourself? And of myself. And in giving everything, you became one of them.
1: Wow. I mean, that's wild. Mm-hmm. When also you're like, <laughs> I'm just trying to tick boxes over here. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm just trying <laughs> to do what you asked me to do. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I'm are really there because of you.
2: Exactly. But it's, you know, it's it's bizarre. Like you send a child into this environment because you want them to be able to take advantage of the, the benefits that that can bring. Mm. But you don't want them it's almost like you want the, the advantages to be selective. You want them to get the education in law, but not in life. You want them to build connections, but not meaningful friendships. I mean, obviously it's way more complex than that, but that's how it felt to me was you're sending me into this space for three, three four years, but you want me to stay away from all of the things that are available for me to take advantage of there. And that's what, And that was the problem with then coming out was it was almost like their greatest fear, not the gay bit, but the the white bit, the Western bit, the kind of leaving Mm. Pakistani community in search of something quote-unquote better. All of that was also realised in the moment that I came out to them.
1: The other thing that's going through my mind as you're saying all of that is that, you know, you come out, I'm thinking fireworks, let's go hang out with my gay family. Well, that's not the full picture because one of the things that you very openly say in the book is that you remember when you started dating the amount of racism that you experienced yeah that made you say to yourself i wish i could pass for caucasian as my mum does sometimes
2: yeah so yeah so my mum is really fair-skinned and my dad's really dark-skinned which results in in me being kind of somewhere in the middle very occasionally i get mistaken for being a different ethnicity and when i was younger and it would happen I loved it because it felt like I was able to put down baggage. It felt like I was able to put down expectation of the sort of person that I would be, the way that I would smell, the way that the the the, the things that would be important to me and to my family. Um I think that when you are raised in a society where you're the minority and you're from a minority that is constantly vilified it's no surprise that as a young person you try and step away from that vilification and for me it mattered most when I was trying to find a partner because you know the gay scene is relentless at the best of times and sometimes yeah I hated I hated being brown because I just thought there is so much that is cut off that that just guys just won't look at me because of this
1: but people used to say crazy things to you right
2: oh yeah absolutely so like some of it was horrible so some of it was like, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't, don't date brown guys. Or, you know, they would say, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm not into Paki's and stuff like that. Um, but then the thing is, it would also range from that all the way through to other stuff, which which on its face was a compliment. So I, I I had more than one occasion. I had somebody say something like, oh, you're too good looking to be Pakistani. And I remember saying to them, oh, have you been to Pakistan? And, and obviously, the answer is always no. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, so what makes you say that? And then you would explore this. This person's obviously like squirming. And I said, yeah. like, because what you've just done is said that basically everybody I'm related to and the country I come from is full of really ugly people, and I happen to be an exception. Mm. And the thing is, I would respond in that way, actually very politely, because it was in my nature to try and handle these things slightly pointedly, but slightly delicately. And you'd get a person who you'd get anger. Like, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to pay you a compliment. Like, why are you getting so upset? Mm. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, like I kind of, now I find it quite funny. I mean, it it's not funny, but it, when it happens, it's, I'm actually, it doesn't make me angry anymore. So now I genuinely explore it because actually in in exploring it, you can get the person to understand what they really mean, which is, my idea of a of a South Asian person doesn't fit with you or who you are, mm. and then you can explore the fact that this idea that you have is based on the fact that you think that we're all we all work in curry houses or corner shops, and and you've never been exposed to the fact that we are you know one point five billion people on the planet, um, mm. and the idea that you wouldn't be attracted to any of us, and the fact that you found one as um, a surprise
1: But why, um, we're not going to find the answer here, but why when you very politely, taking up a load of weight that you shouldn't have to take, by the way, um, is why when you bring it up is the reaction anger. That's what I'm always interested by. Like, because people try and raise stuff with me about things. I go in very, you know, peaceful teacher vibe, but they're just... Getting angry, and it's like, what? Where in your fabric of being? What's being disrupted here that makes you angry?
2: Well, I think what's being disrupted is is the worldview that you don't have to be challenged on anything. You know, and I think I think the thing is, generally speaking, when we exist in a world that gives privileges to some of us, that world is frictionless. So Mm. the sort of men I'm talking to, middle class white men, albeit gay live in a world of, of not very much challenge. It's frictionless. And so then suddenly you're presenting this complexity to them. They go, like, oh, you've said something or you've behaved in a way that's not cool. Um, and that's friction. I mean, I don't know, but I would hazard a guess that the reason that they react with anger is because they're not used to being challenged. They're not used to having to be told, you might be wrong about this. Mm. Um,
1: it's, it's like power as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's definitely right because it is a power, right? Privilege is power—is being able to walk in the world without having to worry about any obstacles or barriers. That's that's power. But I should emphasise that I don't think it's uh, malicious most of the time. I remember I had I went to this party once and it was full of gays and it was like it was 60th no 50th anniversary of like this gay couple, the really rich gay couple that live in London and I I don't know how I managed to get an invite but I got an invite to this thing. <laughs> And so I was wearing like this black tie that I'd worn at uni five years ago I just had to squeeze into. And I was talking to this couple and there was an Indian woman. So this room, right, is in some posh place in London, full of people in black tie, predominantly white. In fact, most people were white. It was like a like hundred people in the room. And about maybe like six metres away from me, like nowhere near me, was this woman in a sari. And this guy, this, this couple in this guy, I was talking to them. They were like, asking me how I knew the people whose party it was and I was like I actually don't I don't and then one of them said um, oh is that your wife about the woman in the sari and I looked at the woman because I hadn't really realised who they were talking about and I looked at them and I just went I laughed and I was like wait what do you mean is that my wife this is a room full of gay men why is that your first question like I'm gay and they were like Oh, oh. And I was like, you literally... And the thing is, I was was finding it so funny. So I was calling Mm. them out on it, but in like a, I thought, a funny way. I was like, you literally just saw a brown woman in a sari and saw me and thought we must be together. Like, you would rather go to that than the fact that statistically, in a room of like 150 (laughs) men, I would be gay. Like, what? Um, And I thought it was funny, but they did not. And one of them actually walked off, complained to the guys whose party it was really and actually t- yeah it turned out that the guys whose party it was were totally like cool and could te- and it could, they understood where i was coming from and that i was and that i genuinely thought it was funny but i remember going back and telling my friends about it afterwards and, and they're like, Mossin, that wasn't funny that was terrible i don't know i mean he wasn't being malicious he was ignorant mm. and i'm sure he won't make that mistake again so i, I think the reason to say that is because fundamentally yeah okay some of these things happen but they're not like when I think about race, the things that matter to me the most are life, liberty and economic opportunity. So mm-hmm. in this country, you, your life expectancy is lower. If you're from an ethnic minority background and you're poor, um, you're disproportionately more likely to go to prison. You're disproportionately more likely to be poor. And those are the things that matter to me. So when people talk to me about microaggressions and even somebody in a bar like telling me that they're not into me because I'm brown. Now, from from this vantage point, I'm able to say that those things matter to me less than whether or not that person cares about the fact that most of the kids in prison are are, are ethnic minorities. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't matter, but it just matters less to me.
1: Yeah, and also, people don't think that happens. That's also the other thing. I think people don't understand those microaggressions happen all day, every day to people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And I think it's important, like you say, to have some perspective. You know, I'm lucky that I don't get many of them. But when I do get the ones that white gay men get, I'm like, this is boring.
2: (laughs) I find microaggressions a bit of an odd term, though, because it's like, well, if it was really aggressive, it's not micro. And it's not really aggressive (laughs) because most of the time it's not intentional. And aggression, I think, requires some intent. So I find it as an odd term
1: i have always trying to work out why the world is the way it is, you know, which is a fool's errand, but there we go. Yeah.
2: And I well, think. If you figure it out, let me know.
1: I'll put it on Instagram. I think what it is, is that people who don't think the world is any different than what's in front of them on a daily basis, mm-hmm. that is what gets up my nose. And unfortunately, it can make me a little impatient because I feel like I can see it coming a mile off. which makes me part of the problem. (laughs) But I think it's that. It's like, that's what a microaggression is. is someone just assuming they know how the world works because it's based on what is in front of them on a daily basis. Whereas actually it should be like, we should remain open-minded, seeking to be informed and enlightened at every corner, surely?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that um i just think that <laughs> you're you know, like, like no 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 you know, it is. no but just, i
1: think that's what I, I suppose i'm trying to define a microaggression
2: yeah i guess i guess the thing is because as i say class is really important to me when i think about how much poverty there is in this country when i think about the fact that we are one of the richest countries in the world and yet we still have lots of people um lots of children who live below the uh, the poverty line and who are um having to queue up at food banks with their parents mm. I, I do kind of worry that some of the priorities that we should as a society and as a community of people be thinking about are lost um so it's not it's not that those things don't matter to me it's that those things don't matter to me as much and once we sort sorted out the fact that you know we have food banks here like once once mm-hmm. those have gone and the societal structural problems that do reinforce and are caused by things like racism and homophobia and sexism. Once those are sorted, then I'll have more time for things like microaggressions.
1: Yeah, but I do think, listen, you're being the bigger person, it's great. <laughs> but I do think they are from similar places. I think it's about compassion. I think that people don't care about people in food banks because they sort of can't believe it's happening. People don't think it's up. you know what I mean? That's what I yeah. think is... no, I think that's probably right. L- there's this is lack of compassion beyond your own nose that I think has been around forever. I don't think that's new. You know, listen to me on my high horse. Tell me about you now, because you're doing many things now.
2: Well, what am I doing now? I So my, my full-time job is I'm a, a management consultant at a firm called Hackler. Yeah. Um, so I stopped being a barrister a little while ago. But then I do... It's the stuff that comes up with the book, like this, um, and so so I do some of that, and and that's really lovely. And I'm still writing, although the eternal problem is finding time when you're not a full time writer. And yeah, I'm on the board of Stonewall. I'm a governor at my old school. I I I think there's there's a few things that I do. I guess one of the things that's keeping me really busy is that there's a few production companies that are interested in um, turning a dutiful boy into a TV show, mm. and that's amazing. Um, it's really odd to be sat in a room where people are talking about the character and the character's narrative arc and you're like oh that's me um Uh. that's really (laughs) weird uh yes but that's that's keeping me quite busy as well because i'm trying to make sure that it's done in a way that is respectful of the book but also of my family and of my community
1: Mm. because you were a criminal barrister yes but then you become a management consultant will you just define what a management consultant is for people listening because i didn't really know what one was.
2: Yeah, so, well, so a management consultant, well, it really depends. But in my case, it's helping ordinarily the CEOs of companies or the chairman of company boards with really important business decisions. So kind of problem solving and identifying opportunities for businesses. So that's that's in basic terms what a management consultant does. So you're
1: like Richard Gere in Pretty Woman.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I> just <laughs> some Gray oh my god if only
1: he's gorgeous never done it for me but anyway sorry that's really? side. that's a sidebar yeah don't don't get it Richard if you're listening I apologize
2: Richard if you're listening text me
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's that famous saying of like you should notice how you feel after you have spent time with somebody and then that means they're good for you or bad for you after being with Mossin, I just felt invigorated and alive and i know fern cotton talks about this quite a lot on her podcast because she talks to amazing people who kind of just inspire you you know that's how i feel after that chat and i hope you feel the same oh i'm looking at a google doc and it's starting to move that means someone else is in my google doc <gasps> katie's doing it katie she's adding things stay in touch over this here festive period hello at homo dot com. Send us your Agni Uncle questions. Send us your comments. Contribute to that thing about godparents. Get in touch on Instagram at Homo Sapiens. Facebook at Homo Sapiens Podcast. Next week, to bring in the new year, we'll be chatting to Tori Peters. Tori is an incredible writer who wrote the, I'm going to call it fleabag-esque, international bestseller, Detransition Baby. Basically, it's the story of the lives of three women, transgender and cisgender, collide after an unexpected pregnancy forces them to confront their deepest desires in one of the most celebrated novels of the year. It is everywhere, all over America, is the book to read. And it's just the way she writes is, it's just amazing and really... Quick and easy. Not that it has to be, but it is. Um, We had such an amazing chat. Proper chemistry, I would say, between us. I just adored her. Um, And we'd never spoken before or anything. And it was just, you know, when you hit it off with someone? So that's next week. You're going to love it. And if you don't, write in and tell me. And we'll talk about it. Because that's how it works here. Listeners, I just want to take the opportunity to say thank you for what has been a very strange year, but what has been an incredible year. Uh, Having you all here has just been beautiful and thank you so much for all of your letters letters all of your emails all of your messages we are one big family and I feel like it's a big family that grows and grows and grows as the years continue and I'm so pleased that there is always room at the table even a bit of grub for every single one of you so thank you and have a happy new year what's your plan for new years oh my god and I have to plug my own tv show new year's day the tourist on BBC One Starring Jamie Dornan Shalom Broome Franklin Danielle MacDonald It's set in the Australian Outback Directed by moi Written by my best mates Harry and Jack And it is about a guy Who wakes up in the middle of nowhere With no idea who he is Or where he's come from And it's kind of a bit like A cross between that film Memento and Fargo Have I even Is that too much for a spoiler? Well I'll let you be the judge Loads of love listeners